This week on Happy Sad Confused, Matt Reeves on going from Cloverfield to Planet of the Apes to the Batman. I'm Josh Horowitz. I am not Batman. Sorry, spoiler alert, Sammy. I am not the Batman. I'm not the Batman. <laughs> I'm not the Batman. I might be Spider-Man. Though. No, no. I'm not. <laughs> twice Spider-Man's yeah. age, literally. How depressing. He might be Uncle Ben, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right there's no uncle ben in the new spider-man movie maybe the Who next needs time him, honestly oh my god sammy what if i'm uncle ben <laughs> you're the villain in the next no one. i want to be uncle ben with great no, power uncle ben is the villain no, in the you've next clearly one. not read a comic book no i'm just saying it's twist all right calm down twist on the old classic okay uh this week returning guest mr matt reeves one of my favorite filmmakers i truly mean that matt reeves uh directed it's an interesting directing tra- uh progression for him he actually directed first a film called the pallbearer with your favorite actor david schwimmer i remember that movie it's like 20 Two years, 21 years old. Oh, my God. I, I remember. Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, and then he disappeared from films and did Felicity. He co-created Felicity with JJ. Did you know that? No. Oh, you, this is the this podcast is- for you. <laughs> we cover that. We talk Felicity. Uh, and you talk about her haircut? <laughs> we did, you know what? I didn't ask that. Yeah. I feel like it's been covered. I don't know. There's always more really? to say about okay. the I'll remember. Well, Carrie When Russell Carrie haircut. comes in, we'll talk about the haircut. <laughs> Great. Uh, but then he returned to films with Cloverfield uh, and since then has done uh, Let Me In, which is an amazing uh, film that not enough people saw. And then he did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and now has War for the Planet of the Apes you that is coming out. You love Planet right. of the Apes. I do. What's, it's a great franchise. Yeah. I, yeah. It is. Uh, Dawn, I think, was a step up from Rise uh, and War maybe – many people are calling this the best of this trilogy. I need to see it again because I really did love Dawn. But War is fantastic. It stars Andy Serkis again as Caesar uh, in an amazing performance but also adds uh, Steve Zahn to the mix. I was going to say, he plays that cute little guy. Bad ape. Bad ape. That's not how he sounds at all. I don't know why I said that. Um, I'm fired from my Uncle Ben role. he sounded like Chappy. (laughs) Chappy love ape. Um, And Woody Harrelson is the bad guy, the colonel. Classic Woody Harrelson. He gives good bad guy. Uh, It's a a great piece of work and, you know, the rare kind of summer blockbuster that's, um, you know, just – it it, it 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 matters. It has artistry. It has like emotion. It's 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 full of something. It's not an empty vessel of 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 crap. That mm-hmm. some movies that shall remain nameless. What's that? Sam, you what? I'm not gonna say okay, it. Okay, I, I thought you might call someone out. I thought you were going to no, say I, it. I like to I like to highlight the positive and not revel in the negative. Okay. 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 Everyone knows what you're talking about. No, we <laughs> we also talk about um, as much as we can the fact that he's directing the next Batman film. Big deal. Any Batman fans out there? Yeah, we're fans. <laughs> yeah, so Matt Reeves uh, recently signed on to direct the next Batman film with Ben Affleck. And, the uh, next Batfleck film. No, we're not. that's not the title, thank God. Uh, <laughs> I'm not seeing and, it. And while he can't say much about it because there really isn't much to say, there's no script, et cetera, um, there is a, a good conversation here in terms of how he came to the project and, um, and why it's worth doing. So um, that's exciting. I'm super excited that he's – part of the Batman uh, franchise because that's a tough act to follow after Christopher Nolan and uh, uh, there are a few filmmakers I would trust more than Matt Reeves so it's in good hands. Um, I'm happy you're happy. <laughs> you don't agree but you're I'm happy. happy. No, I agree. <laughs> With respect, I, agree. I think Paulie Shore should direct the next Batman it, film. That would be like a biodome but Batman <laughs> style. I'm here for it. Batman goes to the biodome. Mm-hmm. Um, stay tuned for that and other shitty ideas from me <laughs> yeah. and Sammy at the end it's of the broadcast. An- stay through the credits. Animated series. <laughs>
<laughs> um, not much else to say except next week is Comic-Con. Oh, my God. Are you guys excited? I'm excited. Are you excited? I am freaking out. A lot of cool people. We're not going to mention who's who's on the docket. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I'm freaking but out. She's freaking out. So if, you, if you're a fan of Happy Second Fuse and know the kind of actors, specific actors that she loves – yeah, you're, we're good, you're all going to be fine. You'll be happy. Uh, everyone's going to be happy. Something for everybody next week. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that uh, in the intro to next week's show. But um, I'm psyched. It'll be a fun. It'll be a fun one. It always is in San Diego. Um, but for now, a film that would be at home at Comic Con, right? Or for the Planet of the Apes? At home anywhere. Exactly. It's fun for the whole family. Exactly. That's what makes it That's what makes it great. Yeah. Um, I can't uh, recommend this uh, film highly enough, and I hope you guys, if you love the franchise as much as me, uh, I think you're going to take this conversation with Matt Reeves. So without any further ado, here's Matt. My pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Matt Reeves. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. First time actually in the studio. We've talked a couple times about these uh, these films. Um, one time I think you were in the throes of editing the last one. Yeah. And uh, then at New York Comic Con. So I'm thrilled to welcome you in uh, to our official podcast realm to talk about this great film. Cool to be here. Um, so since since we have some time and we have talked a, a bit in the past, I want to I want to talk a little bit. Um, Obviously, getting into apes, but I want to go back like a decade. So, a decade ago, where was Uh-oh. your where was your feature directing career? It was it was. A year I don't know bef- what what year was it. That was so, I think Cloverfield was two thousand eight. Oh. so we're talking the year before. Oh, so I was in, I was in uh, before it came out. Yeah, so I was in the middle of making it. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, and we've talked a little bit about like Paul Bearer in the past, which sure. was your feature. 96, I want to say. 96 it came out, yeah. So in those intervening years, which were obviously productive years, Felicity, a lot of television work, et cetera, that being said, like where was your head at in terms of like your feature directing career? Well, so after The Paul Bearer, we got into TV. JJ and I created Felicity and I never thought that we would do TV for five years. Right. But – that's kind of what happened because, you know, we didn't really understand TV. So we did the pilot and we did it really fast. You know, we shot it in like nine days and it was really fun to do. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. They're giving us a show. And then I didn't know what happens. And so they, they – we didn't think the show would get picked up. I mean that doesn't – that never happens. Right. And they picked it up and we said, so what does that mean? I mean that's that's cool. Who, who does the show? And they're like, you guys do. And we're like, oh, really? So suddenly it was this crash course in learning what TV was and doing 22 episodes in a year, and that was crazy. And we did that for four straight years in which, you know, your 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 time off is basically time off for everybody but you. Right, you're already getting we, up for the next season. we got to figure out the next season. So after doing that for about five years, I really wanted to go back to features, and so I took a break, and I wrote a script, a movie called... Uh, the Invisible Woman. That's a movie that I still really yeah, I know. want to make. We've, t- we've talked. You were always yeah. talking about still doing it, right? And, and yeah. I, I still really want to make that movie. Yeah. And I, what ended up happening was uh, Naomi Watts was attached, and we were about to go into prep, and she was approached by Michael Haneke, who was one of her heroes. Um, and he said, I'm going to do a remake of my Funny own games, movie, Funny sure, Games. Yeah, I want to yeah. do it uh, in English. And she came to me and she said, I'm so sorry. I want to do your movie, but I love Michael Haneke and this yeah. opportunity is just too great to pass up. And I, I understood, but my movie fell apart. And so the funny thing that happened was JJ, 
who I'd been talking to him about Cloverfield all along, not for me to do, just because he was telling me, oh, I really want to do this Handicam Monster movie. He said to me, listen, I know you're going to think this is crazy. You're going to make that movie, but why don't you make Cloverfield? And I was like, wait a minute. We've been talking about this movie, and you want me to direct it? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, but I've never done visual effects. I don't understand this world at all. And he said, I know, but that's the easy part. He said, you're going to learn the visual effects part, but then I'm going to get you to do the thing you do, which is to ground it in in character and try and do it the way you would do it, to try and make it feel for as outlandish as it is, as realistic. And I was like, okay. And so I ended up, he said, do me a favor and just meet with Drew, because at that point all they had was an outline. So I met with Drew Goddard. I read the outline. And I said to him, well, you know, I would do it like this and like that, and I'm always looking for a reason to say no. And Drew was like, yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. And I was like, well, but also I would do this. He goes, yeah, let's do that. And I was like, okay. And so JJ was like, look, why don't you guys sit down and you can just beat out the story. So did JJ at that time have enough clout with Paramount where like they could – he could – Here's the crazy thing about Cloverfield. So Cloverfield was made for such a low budget that the studio – I mean, it's it's almost it's it's not even real much of an overstatement to say that the studio, as long as the events that were in it, they didn't care what the movie was. If we were going to make it for that price, they're saying, "Wait a minute, you're going to do giant monster movie, Manhattan? This stuff's going to happen yeah. for this price?" Yeah. The answer is yes. It's almost impossible to lose money. Yeah. On that. They were like, "There's no. This is like a crazy experiment. Go ahead." And so, and I had no idea how we were going to do that, and it was a crash course, and so. Drew and I beat out this story, and we didn't even know if we could make it the way I wanted to because I was like, well, if it's really going to be like a handicam, it has to be small. And at that point, the cameras that we were using, the digital cameras, were quite heavy. Right. And so we had to use this mixture of, you know, real small handicams that were light that I gave to the actors and that I filmed with. And then we would put handles on the big cameras to make them seem like they were light. And everybody was like saying, no, no, you're going to have to do this with Steadicam and then add Shake later. And I was like, we can't do that because anybody watching this will know that that's phony. Right. So anyway, we made a trailer – the point of which was for me to see if we could make the movie, and we discovered we could, and then they put it on Transformers, and we hadn't even made the movie, and I was like, going, what's this movie? And I'm going, yeah, what's this movie? <laughs> and so we went off and made that movie, and I never saw myself as a genre filmmaker, um, but the making of that movie was an eye-opening experience because how do you do anything, right? You have to put yourself emotionally in the position to understand it. And the movie ended up for me, despite, you know, it being, aside from making people nauseous, hopefully a, um, you know, a a fun ride. For me, it was about my fears, you know, about the fear of being at the center of something you didn't understand and feeling powerless and and not having all the information. And, And I realized, I was like, oh, this is so fun that we get to do this. And yet I'm exploring something that for me feels personal. And that for me, even though I'd always loved genre films, became this thing where I realized, okay, so I can't make the movie I want to make yet, but these movies that I'm starting to make, I can still find myself in them. And that was a big lesson. And Let Me In became the same thing, where it was like, here was this opportunity to do this movie, which felt very personal to me. Yeah. And and so given that I couldn't, again, I was trying to make my movie, The Invisible Woman, the independent film world was falling apart at that moment and like, you know, Vantage was closing up and all this stuff right at the moment I finished Cloverfield. I thought Cloverfield was going to slam dunk it for me. I was like, hey, I made Cloverfield. Now I get to make this little movie. And weirdly, I couldn't. I couldn't get the movie made. And at that point, I was trying to make it with Carrie Russell. And um, and we couldn't raise the financing. And so the thing that grabbed me the most was, was Let Me In. And I, I wrote to John Lindquist and I said, look, I've really, I turned this down initially, but it feels like 
this is your childhood reminds me of my childhood. And he was like, dude, I love Cloverfield. I want you to make it. And um, he was really gracious. And so I did that. And then that weirdly opened this door to apes. And, and it's been, you know, it's just bizarre. Well, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, if you're looking for some kind of links in terms of the what you're attracted to, I mean, Cloverfield's all about perspective, right? Sure. In terms of like the POV. And that's yeah. kind of like one of the literally. angles. Yeah, yeah. literally. I mean, the, the selling the point camera. in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, and then Let Me In is very much in the shoes of, of that kid and, and and sometimes in the shoes of, of unlikely people like Richard Jenkins in that, sure. in that car. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, going all the way through Apes, you're, you're – you're letting the audience identify with unlikely protagonists yes. uh, very often. And is that well, that's, that's always my approach. I mean, if you look for those people who would, who maybe wouldn't look back at that, but if you look at Felicity, that's how I tried to do that. Like when we were doing the pilot, the visual style, the approach was all about getting inside of her head and mm. being this young woman as she was going and doing this sort of crazy thing that ended up being sort of a, 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 uh, a, a grasp at, at liberation for her, you know, trying to break free of of, of uh, kind of the plans her had been laid out for her. And that exploration, it, everything I do, I mean, even as weird as it sounds, the pallbearer has that too. Like it, it's, I always try to approach everything with the idea of movies having to do with empathy right. and that the power of cinema is to put you in the shoes of a character that you're not so that you can have that experience, so it can extend your sympathies. And... Um, that's what I do every time. So people will look at my filmography and the stuff I've done, the TV stuff, and they'll say, this is incredibly disparate. What, who is this guy? And yet my approach is exactly the same every time. It's, totally. it's, um, it's, I have to find a personal way in or I don't know where to put the camera. So, so just, just on a nuts and bolts question, because I, I would be remiss not to follow on Cloverfield because I've talked to you many times and I, I was always asking up until 10 Cloverfield Lane, when's the sequel like everybody else? <laughs> and I know you guys talked a lot about a lot of different angles in. Did 10 Cloverfield Lane kind of like close the door on kind of no, the no, what, what happened? I mean, I mean, who knows the... that that would ever happen? But what, what happened was JJ and Drew and I would always talk about what we wanted to do. And we kept trying to figure out what it would be and to get us all to fall in love with the same thing because we each had ideas about what it should be. Um, but also, each of us was incredibly busy. Like, J.J. was doing a little thing called Star Wars. Sure. I started doing the Apes movies. And and Drew was making The Martian. And he's, got, you know, he's, he's and he bought my cabin in the woods. Like, he was doing all this stuff. So it was like, well, one of these days we'll find the way to do it. And then one day, J.J. Uh, called both Drew and I up and said, listen, I have an idea, and the idea is that what if Cloverfield isn't just the idea of a follow-up to Cloverfield, but it's actually a kind of movie? What if it's like The Twilight Zone? Right, he which said, I know is close to both of your hearts yeah, growing up. And, right? and, yeah, and and so we got really excited about that, and he said, this is an opportunity. We could come up with movies. Any of the three of us could come up with, we could, hey, here's an idea. Let's do this as a movie. Let's explore this. This becomes an opportunity to do that. And he said, well, here's the thing. If you guys think that's an exciting thing— then I have this movie that we've been making, and I actually think it fits really beautifully into that. And it did. It was this great movie. And so we were like, well, that's really great. And it was a typical J.J. brainstorm, like just a brilliant idea. And the great thing was we were saying, you know, I mean, who knows that we ever would or will. But it was like it doesn't really close off the possibility that one of those movies could be uh, the sequel that we always talked about if we ever find the one that we all really want to do and the time to do it. So – you know who knows, but it doesn't. It doesn't close the door. Right. It, what it does is it opens a lot of doors, exactly. and, it, and it creates an opportunity for a lot of interesting uh, stories to explore. You were actually attached to a Twilight Zone project at one point, weren't you? 
I was. I was developing it at Warner Brothers. That's been a tough nut to crack for a film. It was really hard, and um, it was one of those things where it's funny because I was flirting with a lot of franchises and a lot of um, big sort of blockbuster films at that time, and I I never got to a place where I would ultimately commit to any of them because I didn't think that they quite were something I could find myself in. And weirdly, at the moment where they were asking me to decide about Twilight Zone, I was approached about apes. And I was like, I don't think we've cracked Twilight Zone, but I'm very interested in apes. And I, I'm always looking for the reason to say no, as right, I was saying. Right. So when I came in with them, I thought, okay, Rupert Wyatt made a terrific movie. Why is he not making this movie? And it turned out that he couldn't come to terms uh, on the one he wanted to do. He couldn't, he couldn't get the story that he wanted to tell, that they also wanted to tell, and so they couldn't agree. And they spent a year doing that. And I talked to Dylan Clark, who I'd met because he offered me another franchise earlier that I didn't want to do. But what we had connected on, that he had a Planet of the Apes poster on the wall. And I was like, oh, I love Planet of the Apes. And he remembered that. And so he called me, and I went in, and I said, all right, so what's the other shoe here? Because, you know, this is a great opportunity, and this is a great franchise. Rise was terrific. And uh, he said, well, nothing really. And then they gave him the outline, and I didn't want to tell that story. And I thought, okay, so this is the no. And he said, no, don't say no. And then Peter Turner called me up in the studio. They were like, no, don't say no. Tell us the story you would do. And I'm like, you're not going to do my story. That's never going to happen. Also in the time frame. And the ti- you, oh, well, that was, that, was, that, was, that was part two. So the first <laughs> thing was, you're not going to tell my story. The second part is, you guys want this movie to come out in two years, right. and I've never done a mocap movie. So what happened was they said, listen, just spend some time and figure out the story you would tell. So I thought about it. And I went in and I thought they'd try to make me some kind of Faustian bargain. And the Faustian bargain was going to be a no, too. I'm always looking for the no. <laughs> and I went in and instead of saying, okay, listen, you, got, you can do 30% what you want to do and 70%, you know, what we want. They just said, okay. Emma Watts said, uh, that sounds great. Are you in? And I was like, <laughs> you know, in, in a way, like, please, can we get going? And um, I was like, wait a minute. Let me just be clear on this. You're saying I can make that movie? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, so what? What's the other shoe on this? And then she said, well, there is another shoe. The other shoe is that we spent a year and we have a release date. And so you have to make that movie starting right now and come out on the release date, which is two years from now. And given that there was no script at that point, um, that was crazy. And I'd never done mocap. But I figured, you know what? If ever I'm going to dabble in this area, if ever I'm going to do a blockbuster, I just pitched them the story I would want to do. And they said yes. Right. And it's in a it's franchise that I love. Yeah. And I'm like okay, this could be suicide, but I'm going to try it. And so that's what happened. How much does does Godfather ever come up in conversations about Caesar, about like the comparisons with him? Yeah, and, I mean, all the time. He's Michael Corleone, kind of. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's a way in which he's Michael Corleone, sure. Um, it, You know, I think the idea for the franchise is that because it's about holding a mirror up to our own nature, we're looking at these apes and... We're seeing how they are, but really we're looking at ourselves. Um, the idea is to try and be ambitious with the storytelling and do the kind of storytelling that you probably couldn't do if it weren't for the fact that these are photoreal apes. Right. And so um, we try to be ambitious and we look at um, 
a lot of different, you know, to me what's interesting is this idea of the collision of the old and the new, like using the cutting-edge technology but marrying it with a kind of classical story. So we're looking at, like, Kurosawa films. We're looking at, like, John Ford Westerns. Sure. And so there are a lot of classical, mythic forms that we're looking at for inspiration and then trying to ground it in something personal. I mean, my truly my deepest connection in coming into Dawn was my son, that when I saw, we may have talked about this, yeah. but when I saw um, uh, Andy speak his first words, my son was just speaking his first words. And I, there's something about that look behind Andy's eyes that reminded me of my son, which is this idea that for a year he's been wanting to say no, but he didn't have the tools yet to do it. <laughs> and then finally when it came, it came with such emotional urgency. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, this is a reminder of how we are animals. My, my son was such an animal. And I was like, you know, this is being a father is a really profound experience. And I thought, you know, what could be better than exploring that aspect of ourselves through these apes, and it was a very personal thing. It was really um, an exciting gift. The, I mean, the performance that that I mean, all your mocap actors and your live action actors uh, give are remarkable. But you know, we've talked before, and we should talk again about Andy and what he brings to um, this just amazing arc of a character. It's such a unique opportunity that he's gotten to play Caesar from infant to this kind of like oh, for king sure. status. Well, the thing that was great about this movie was that I got to work with him on Dawn. So when Mark and I were writing the script, to know that it was going to be Andy, it's one thing to know that it's Caesar, right? You feel like you know a character. But to know that it's Andy means that you know that that well you're going to is bottomless. Like, my experience with Andy was, first of all, I just love him so much personally. He's just such an incredibly generous, wonderful person. And he's, always, like, he's the kind of person who, if somebody has a close-up at 4 in the morning, and he was on the other side, he's going to stay until 4 in the morning, right. and we're shooting outside in the rain, and he's freezing cold, and he's sitting there in a, in a wet mocap suit, and he'll, he'll do it because he really wants to give to the other actors, and that's how committed he is. But also, he is just one of the best actors in the world. I mean, he's, he's amazing, and he goes there right from the rehearsals, you know? And so there was just a an excitement in knowing that I was going to come back and get to work with Andy again and to explore this character and to push him into places that we hadn't seen him go yet right. and to know that it was going to be Andy. And so I just think he's incredible in the movie. So uh, we're not going to reveal like sort of how this this trilogy concludes and if we even call it conclusion because um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, go right up until Planet of the Apes, the original. Oh, no. There are more stories in between. Should, so, should the movie do okay? Right. Well, I hope I hope we see some more. And at the same I time, so too. at the same time, I worry that I won't get to see you direct it because you're going to be busy at least for the next two or three well, years. Well, I'm going to be Batman. busy for now, but who knows? Okay. So have you, have you mapped out now that you kind of like after Dawn, you know, you see the huge success and you know they're interested in having you back. There's probably not opportunity to think about, okay, this is now, you know, two films and this is a franchise and we have um, some buy-in from the audience and from the studio. If this goes well, like, do you map out with your collaborators, like, how many films more you uh, would want? I don't know if it's a number of films. That's more a trajectory, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I certainly see in my mind where the story goes. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of where Bad Ape came from, was where the story goes, which is this implication that there are other apes out there. And the whole idea for me that was exciting and coming on Dawn was knowing that the originals were there as a trajectory and that the we're not in the same precise universe because right. Rise changed the timeline and evolution, that is the reason the apes have evolved the way they have in 
the original Planet of the Apes in the 68 movie, has been superseded by this 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 uh, viral delivery system, right. the, uh, the Alzheimer's drug. Um, and I think that what's interesting is knowing that it is a kind of world you're going to, and, and then the story stops becoming about what it becomes. We know that answer. You can't do the Statue of Liberty ending again. That's already been done, right? You can't fool an audience right. again. So there's the great Serling thing. You do it once, and that's what it is. What is great is knowing that this story is about how we get there. So that's like the big ape Russian novel that takes you chapter by chapter exploring these ca- characters about what is it about these characters that turns this world that we're seeing into that world. And I think that there are some grand stories to tell about the characters that we know that take us and, and new characters that we don't know that take us toward that world. Is it without revealing too much, uh, safe to say we would see more of, you know, Caesar's family factors into this. I think so. I mean, I I have, yeah, I have, I have, I have very specific thoughts about where I think it would go. But, you know, we're just finished this and (laughs) nobody's asked specifically, uh, you know, to do that yet. And, um, and we'll see. Do you think, do you think we're going to, you know, this conversation happens on every, seems like every Andy Serkis mocap performance, but it's worth having uh, in terms of recognition. Do you think we're going to see any awards recognition at some point? Do you think that's a huge hurdle still to jump over? I hope so. It is a hurdle because I think that, you know, you have to keep in mind that one of the largest voting blocks in the Academy, of course, are actors. And I think that, you know, actors are understandably afraid of things like this because they worry that they're going to be replaced by avatars of some sort, you know, of these, these, these characters. But what we've been trying to do, and Andy's really been at the forefront, is to educate people to understand that actually what it is is it's really freeing to the actors, that these performances, they come from the actors, and, and it's, it frees them from their physicality. You can play something that you don't look like at all, but the essence of what you're playing can be put into these photoreal characters, and that is amazing. I mean, for me, especially having done Cloverfield and knowing what it's like to do a CG movie where you're you're performing to something that isn't there, here, the CGI is all at the service of performance. The It's not taking emphasis off of the actors. It's actually taking the CG aspect of the film and focusing it specifically on the actors. And when I was doing all the scenes I was doing, this was as, mo- as much like an independent movie as anything I've done in terms of how I shot the scenes between the actors. Yeah. It was all about performance, and we could explore and improvise. There's a tremendous amount of improvisation. So I think that as it becomes clear what performance capture is, and as more actors try it, I mean, what was so cool was to have Steve Zahn come in and have him have that experience and have him say, this was the most like experimental theater of anything that I've done since I did experimental theater when I was young. He goes, it's a pure acting experience. And to have Toby Kebbell come in, who's great, it was amazing as Koba. Like, these guys are great actors, and as they come in and they start playing around in that world, it starts to spread the message, hey, you know what? There's something exciting to be done here. And I think then the stigma or the fear about what it is may start to dissipate, and then hopefully people will recognize just the amazing performance that well, you get from Andy. And to trust in the, the technology that it brings out, as you say, kind of more humanity, not less. I mean, the, 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 with, with all due respect to some of your grand vistas and your larger shots, I always find, and you you have some amazing close-ups, like you, you you start and end these films sure. with like really intimate shots into the, those eyes, and it's just 
and 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 I forget so quickly, if at all, the, of what I'm watching. Right. Well, that's good. I mean, look, I wanted to shoot the movie on the Alexa 65 for a specific reason. One was that I wanted it to be epic, right? I wanted sure. it to be a, like a lean movie. <clears throat> and so for the Vistas, it's a 6K camera, and we have, you know, it's absolutely stunning. But the flip side of that was that when you're using a 65 millimeter camera, it's a larger film plane size, so it's like using a medium format portraiture camera. What that means is that not only does it look great wide, but when I move in for really tight close-ups, it's some of the most beautiful, intimate, like soft focus right. uh, shots you could possibly get. So I knew that the close-ups would be amazing, and I wanted that juxtaposition. The context was the grand, right? The big kind of lean John Ford moments, the Kurosawa scale, but then what really mattered was the juxtaposition of those really intimate moments. And without that, without what was going on in the foreground, the big background vista didn't sure. matter. And so that was what was exciting about trying to do this movie. And actually, this is the first time of the three where we've been able to do what I've wanted to do from my coming into the series, which is to make a full ape point of view movie where the idea is that the, the audience goes along in this journey where, in essence, they become Caesar. Do we know, by the way, what happened to Jason and Carrie's characters? Were they ever mentioned in a script or oh, what? Oh, yeah, they were. Actually, uh, specifically, uh, Jason's character was. Um, and um, it it was a it was a disturbing discovery, oh, yeah. No. It's a, the, the colonel um, <laughs> had revealed some information about a, uh, a man who'd come to him when he first got to the city and impressed upon him how important it was to find Caesar. Um, and to tell him, you know, that he needed to f to create peace with this man, and that this that this uh, ape was not um, just an ape, but was a great leader. And he thought that this guy was crazy. And uh, now he was. He said in the scene, he goes, "I see what he meant." And then Caesar says, "Well, what happened to him?" And he says, "I killed him." And then he's perplexed as to why, and he says his ideas were very dangerous. Wow. because the ideas were like a virus that right. can spread to others. And right now this is a fight for humanity. So that's what happened. Uh, and, <laughs> and that scene actually might be, yeah, if you, did, you know, because the movie's so light otherwise. <laughs> um, and then uh, the scene um, the scene didn't work because Mark and I had written it in this way. He was, he's in this kind of fugue state. And it, oh, when, when does this come out? I think this is a spoiler. I won't, okay, so we'll, we'll, we, we, okay. we revealed Forget enough. It. Okay. Spoiler, okay. Oh, revealed okay. enough. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Well, let's talk about something else that we can't talk about, which is Batman. Uh, so let's have a conversation about this. In some... Did you say something we can't talk about? Exactly, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so you, you've talked about how in several projects you, you kind of like look for reasons to say no. Yeah. So when this opportunity comes around – I said you... no. <laughs> Did you really? No. Were the, were the, what, but do you make a list of kind of like pros and cons? No, or... it's purely instinctual. What happens is I go in – on everything that I've ever gone in, and I talk about the version I would do. And this is truly how I feel about it. I'm happy not to do anything because I accept that the people who are putting up these tremendous amounts of money have the right to do whatever they want to do with those projects. And if they want me to get involved, though, then I have to do it in a way that I feel like I understand or I won't do a good job. I have to understand it from emotionally so that I know where the camera goes, so I know what the story is. And so what I do is I always talk about the perspective from which I want to make it, which has a lot to do with what we're talking about with that kind of yeah. this, this sense of putting you in a character's shoes, a very point of view driven, sort of empathetic, Hitchcockian kind of approach, right? And I talked less about 
exactly what I wanted to do, let's say story-wise, and just talk to ambition-wise, what I was going after emotionally and what I wanted point of view-wise. And I figured they're either going to go for that or they're going to say, you know, next and we'll look for somebody else. And they were excited by it. And so that's that's how I said yes. Are you are you working off of the existing script that Ben and Jeff did? Or? No, we're starting. It's a new story. I mean, it's just starting again. Yeah. And, um, and it's going to be – I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really cool. I, I know there's almost literally nothing to say about it. But, like, there's been – I've talked to Josh Gad, who's created, like, this, like, internet sensation when he, like, posted photos of uh-huh. himself. as you That's know, so like, funny. But, like, have you talked to anybody about casting? No. About anyone no, outside no, of no, Ben? No, 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 no. No, because the whole thing is just – look, truly – I have not been doing anything but working on Planet of the Apes. No, I believe it. So uh, <laughs> these are know, not films you can phone in. Yeah, they—they're you know I'm I was there up until the very last day at about midnight. You know what I mean? It was the kind of thing where that you work. I've been working on this movie for three years, and when it stops, it's like falling off a cliff because it's all I've been doing for three years. So I had this one. They came to me and they said, "We want to meet you." What actually happened is funny. This thing about the Warner Brothers thing is they said we would love to have a general meeting with you. And they kept talking about this general meeting. My agent kept framing it as a general meeting. And I was like, well, that's fine. Let's have the general meeting once I'm done with the movie. And they kept saying, well, we'd like to have it sooner. And then finally, one day, my agent called and he said, okay, so you know that general meeting? I said, yeah, I should do it after I'm done with the movie. He said, wait a minute, it's not a general meeting. And I said, well, what is it? He goes, well, they want to talk to you about this. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'm sure I could find some time to have that meeting. So, <laughs> the crown jewel yeah, of the so, superhero. So I had, <laughs> I did, I had the meeting, but I said to him, here's, you know, not only did I say this is the perspective from which I want to come, which is really about a personal perspective for how I want to do it, but I also said, but you also have to understand this, I'm not free. I can't start on this. Right. I am working on a movie that I've worked on for three years that I certainly am not going to drop the ball now. This has been an incredible journey for me, and I my everything is in this movie for me, everything that I put into this, and I couldn't do that to everybody who's been involved. And so we'd have to start, and not only that, but I'm going to need a short break because I've been working on this movie for three years. So we are just starting, so there's really there's really nothing to say about anything. You—, you... Was one of the – because you met with one of those about Superman, I think, way back when. Was that one of the ones that you actually turned down or was that just something uh, – a conversation? No, I actually didn't meet with Warner Brothers about Superman. Okay. That was, that was one of those things where there You're were – You're on a list and there's whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And that was right after Let Me In. Yeah. Gotcha. Were comic books a big thing for you growing up? Um, I would say comic books were and also really more – you know, for me, it's it's, you know, like Planet of the Apes – I was really into from the TV series, and that found my way back to the movie, and then I started collecting all the dolls, and I have to say it was that way with Batman. I start, you know, the Adam West TV series, I know it sounds silly. No, that's the point of entry for most of us. I just loved it, and I started collecting all the, I had those same, that same company, Mego, that made the the Apes dolls, they made the Batman dolls. (laughs) They also made Shazam, which I had as well. Oh, Shazam's Um, great, yeah. And and so I came to it that way and then started collecting comic books and that kind of stuff. But I was really, I really came to it through the TV shows, to be totally honest. So Um, you're using the big Biff, Bow, Pow. Oh, sure. That's that's, that's the, well, that's what I said. I said, here's the personal way to do it. (laughs) Blam! In honor of the great Adam West. Why not? So, um, you know, and for those that don't know, you've mentioned your collaborations with JJ. I mean, you've known JJ for a long while. Since we were 13, yeah. 13. So, and and that that's an amazing story, which we may or may not have told before, but it's worth talking about just because 
it was your friendship, but then an immediate kind of weird collaboration with both Spielberg and I guess Kathy Kennedy probably, right? Was Kathy? Yes. Because Kathy was his assistant at Kathy the time. Kathy was his or, assistant at the time. What happened was I met JJ because I saw his 8mm films on a public access channel <clears throat> on Theta Cable television. <clears throat> and um, I was like, wow. I want my 8mm movies to be on this show. And the thing about this show was it was a guy who wanted to air people who made 8mm movies, and it turns out that most people who made 8mm movies were kids. Yeah. So J.J. had made these horror movies, and he was on the show, and I was like, I had this um, this detective movie that I wanted to put on the show. And so um, I put it on, and the guy who ran it, this guy Gerard Ravel, introduced us. He said, oh, you should meet this guy, JJ. I said, wait, wait, let's just be clear. Is my Are my shorts going to be on the, on the show? He was like, yeah. I said, okay, so who's this kid? <laughs> and he introduced us, and he goes, he's your age, man. You guys are going to hit it off. And we became really good friends. We started making movies together. And that festival, Gerard brought to the New Art Theater in uh, West L.A., and it was written up in the calendar section of the L.A. Times. And Steven Spielberg saw... The article, the article was called Beardless Wonders, and it had a picture of me and JJ, my friend Mark and Gerard, were all crowded around this little tiny 8-millimeter camera trying to look professional. And um, he saw it, and then Kathy Kennedy called Gerard and um, said, well, I really want to see these movies. So we got the movies to her, and then we got the movies back a few weeks later, and uh, she said, Steven said, thank you very much. You really enjoyed seeing them. And I was like, wow, that was really cool. Steven Spielberg just saw our movies. Then I got a call about eight months later from Kathy Kennedy. And she said, is this Matt? I said, yeah. She said, um, it's Kathy Kennedy. And I was like, okay. And she goes, listen, um, I wanted to talk to you about something. They, Stephen used to live in Arizona. And the people who live in the house where he grew up, um, not connected in any way, they just live there now, they found something that was hidden in the basement. And it was a box. And the box on the side said Stevie Spielberg. And inside were eight millimeter movies that Steven Spielberg had thought that he lost and had lost but now had been found. And she said these have been in a hot basement in Arizona since he was a kid. They're falling apart. And Steven said to me, oh, my God, can you have these repaired? And I said, Steven, who's going to repair eight millimeter movies? And then he said, well, those kids would know how. <laughs> and so I was like, what are you saying? She goes, I'm saying that we would like to hire you and JJ to go through the movies and fix them up, you know, repair any splice holes or you know, repair any splice breaks or any, any kind of stuff. And um, I was like, yeah, of course we would. And the movies, there was a movie called Firelight. Sure. It was basically Escape, I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, Close Encounters. And it even had a little, you know, Firelight was this little red a uh, glowing ball, which he did with this effect, an in-camera, you know, 8-millimeter double exposure effect, um, that actually, when he made Close Encounters, there's that little red ball that follows them. So he actually has firelight is in it, which is really weird. Um, and then he made a movie called Escape to Nowhere, which was kind of like a World War II adventure movie that was weirdly, of course not exactly, but weirdly like Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it was this weird thing where... He had these movies, and what was great is they were 8-millimeter movies, and when they're 8-millimeter movies, they're pretty crude, right? Yeah. This was very encouraging to J.J. and I because we looked at him and we're going, this is Steven Spielberg, who was like our hero, and the movies, they look like our movies. <laughs> and I was like, there's hope. Maybe we could do this. And, um, and so that, 
that's what happened. It we, feels we, like there's a fictionalized version, slightly fictionalized it's version. It's Super 8. I was going to say <laughs> of a TV series or a film that's of just boy wonders that meet like the Wizard of Oz, essentially. Oh, yes. Like that, that's just mind boggling. Did you, did you, I mean, do you have a relationship with Kathy and, and, and Steven Spielberg to this day? I mean, are they? Uh, a, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, Steven, I met again after Cloverfield. Um, and he was really great. He said, uh, JJ, he was on. He came onto the set of Star Trek while JJ was filming, and Brian, who's my childhood friend as well, Brian Burke, and w- was uh, JJ's producing partner on that movie, called me and said, "You have to come over now." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because Stephen is asking where that director of Cloverfield is." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" He goes, "Come over to Paramount right now." So I went over, and he's talking to everybody, and I was like, oh my god, there he is. This is so cool. And then he goes, are you Matt? And he said, yeah. He said, you scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, this is the greatest day of my life. So he was really very generous, and then since then, I've called on him to ask him questions, and he's been very generous. Like when I was doing Let Me In, I said, I really want to talk to you about directing children. And he, I came to his office, and he talked to me about that, and it was really helpful and great. And then actually, on War, I talked to him about Previs, because it's funny, I was talking to JJ and I said, you know, I'm having a hard time with Previs. I find that process really hard. He goes, yeah, you know what? I hate Previs. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so is it just wrapping your brain around what it's, it's going to be? Because, you know, like- what's hard is, is that with Previs, see, I'm a very, I'm driven by my instincts, right? So I, I usually find things by seeing, right? Yeah. I need to be in the space. I look through the lens and then I find the angle, the actor standing in place. I say, oh, wait, stand over here. Here's the shot. And it's very tactile. The thing about Previs is the way it's mostly done is you have previs artists take maybe boards that you've worked on with a board artist, and then they do their interpretation of them. So what happens is you get this version that you didn't really direct, and you're like, well, this is useless. And I threw out literally almost every piece of previs on Dawn that we did, and that cost a tremendous amount of money, and it was really not useful. So on this one, I wanted to see if there was a way to tackle it better. And so I actually ended up calling Stephen again, and he talked to me about how he had done BFG, and um, it was really helpful. And then, and then I ended up cracking it in this particular way, which was really great, which was I started treating the virtual environments as if they were real environments. And I, instead of having them interpret the boards, I said, let's explore this environment as if I have a finder, and we're going to go through, and I worked with an artist and found the shots. And so it was like we were walking on the set. So we'd walk into the set, and I'd say, ooh, there's an angle. And then he would grab the angles. And then he would grab all these angles, and then they would start to animate based on the angles I'd chosen. And that was the most like being on the set. So that was something that... um, that was a breakthrough for me, previs wise. On it this. reminds me. I'm mean, speaking of that kind of technique. That's on the previs side, but like I'm thinking about mocap. Like I've seen stuff of like the way James Cameron works, like in that kind of like box. Like he's able to literally move that camera sure, around. Sure. He's in, now we had a volume like that, and I I did have that too, but we didn't have we didn't have that on our set, and we had it limited in some of our volume capture. So it wasn't what it wasn't one to one. And he would go back. The great thing about the way that he did it, and the way I'm sure he's going to do it, is. You know, he goes in there and he does it one way and then he's like, oh, wait, let's go back and we can change it again. And he keeps getting the capture and refining it and ends up over the course of this long period of time making this incredibly refined version of his movie, which is purely out of his head, right? He's able to really get in there and do it. Now, I did choose shots like that, but we had much less time in the volume because most of our movie was really shot on location. Um, And so I still found that aspect of it to be, for the most part, because it wasn't one-to-one. Like, when I'm on a set and I pick up a finder and I look at the shot, it's the shot. But there's something about the responsiveness right now, at least, or the volume that we had set up. It's more primitive. Uh, and so 
it's a little bit like a video game interface, mm -hmm. and I just do better with something that feels more tactile oh, and real. You. So it was um, that's always the biggest struggle for me is doing some of that virtual stuff. Do you have the? I, I know it was a huge um, deal for JJ, obviously, to take on Star Wars. It was something so close to his heart. Sure. Did you have the same kind of affection with Star Wars? Big for you? Oh my growing god! Up? Yeah. You know, it's funny because we just showed the movie <clears throat> at at uh, Fox in the theater that I saw Star Wars in the the Zanuck Theater. On the on Fox the lot, lot right, yeah. is actually my dad knew somebody. My dad was an executive in a for um, ABC, so he worked in business affairs, and he had a friend who worked at 20th Century Fox. And so when that movie came out, he was like, "We're going to go see a movie. It's called Star Wars." <laughs> and this was before it came out, probably like a week before it came out. And I was like, well, "What's that? I don't know what that is." And my head exploded. And so I um, I became obsessed with that movie, and I saw it, I don't know how many times in the theater a lot, but an interesting thing, my dad, um, for Christmas that year, in 1977, gave me a Betamax, because at ABC, they would watch pilots on Betamaxes, but they weren't commercially available yet. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like you could buy a movie. There was no such thing. Like now everyone's right. like going, oh, I gotta get a Blu-ray, I can stream it. There was no such thing. You saw it in the theater or you didn't see it. Exactly. And so he <laughs> gave me this thing. To most and, of our listeners, sorry. Yeah, they're like, they can't imagine. They're like going, yeah, so you had a movie, who cares? You don't have every movie on your phone? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, but this was not the way it worked, right? And so the way it worked was he, so he gave me this thing and I was like, what's this big box? And he goes, well, this thing's called a Betamax. And I was like, yeah, well, what's it for? And he goes, well, you can play movies or you can tape things off of television. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I was like, what's this small box? And he goes, that is Star Wars. And it turns out, I guess I can say this now. Um, <laughs> you had the first bootleg copy of Star Wars. I had a bootleg copy of Star Wars when I was 11 years old. Wow. And it was the only movie I had. And I watched it every day when I came home from elementary <laughs> school. It was the only movie I had. I memorized every line. And I was obsessed with that movie. And one day, by mistake, not realizing what I was doing, I taped a part of Laverne and Shirley over it, and it devastated me. <laughs> as it way. should. Yes, as I, I'm not sure that I ever quite got over. <laughs> Do you have a, a bootleg of a Last Jedi on your phone that I can sneak a peek at? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no. I can only talk about 1977 bootlegs. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> That's your sweet spot. And by the way, even if that turns out not to be legal to have done, then I, I, I no, everything I just said story. is made up. Yeah, it's a good yeah, story. You're a good storyteller. Yeah. Um, I'm willing to bet big money, though, that you've had a meeting at least with Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? What was the question? I, I said, I think you can hear you? me. What? You were you're so good at pivoting, I did not and then get suddenly a, a bootleg of Star Wars. I don't know okay. what you're talking about. Okay. Would that hypothetically interest you to ever take on something like that, to take on a Star Wars story? Oh, who knows? I mean, look, I, I, I love that world, obviously. I was obsessed with that world. I was so excited. when I mean, I was – J.J. called me, and I was one of the first people to show it to him who wasn't involved in the thing. And I remember going – I was just so excited to sit there and go like, oh, my God, you made a Star Wars movie. This is so – it was so exciting. I went over to Bad Robot and watched it. Um, I think that world is so rich and exciting, and it certainly connects in a powerful way to my childhood – um, and, and who knows? Yeah. Do you guys still show each other like early cuts? Or, For sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. I showed, JJ showed me Force Awakens and I showed him this and I remember distinctly going over to, I showed him to him at Bad Robot and, um, oh wait, that's another thing I'm not supposed to say. I wasn't supposed to do that. But anyway, I <laughs> did that. you out of the here in Cam and, Cups. I'm um, sorry. No one's going to come after me now. But in any case, <laughs> look, you do what you, here's the thing. The thing you have to do is you have to show things you make to people you trust. Yeah. 
in order to see, to check your math, right? And so obviously we do tests at the studio. We showed versions of this movie. We test screened versions of this movie of people in their mocap suits. Like it's a crazy thing. Right? Oh, it's so scary. But it was so cool is how, because of how good Andy is and how good the actors are, it actually worked for them. Like they kind of got it when you said, okay, keep in mind these are gonna be apes, but right now it's Andy Serkis and isn't he amazing? And they actually did think he was amazing, which was so great. But the other thing that you do is you show it to people you know, I showed it to Drew Goddard. I showed it to a, a lot of really close friends of mine just to make sure that we were on the right track. Yeah. And, and one of them was JJ. Yeah, I've always shown everything I've ever done, and he he usually shows me what he's what he's doing as well. I know you've talked about it. You need to sh- that someone put on Blu-ray or something, just the side by side of. Yeah, the, of I the... hope we will. I think um, we definitely have talked about it. There's, I can think of a, a bunch of scenes that I would do it with, and I think it would be really fun to potentially do it with the whole movie. But we'll we'll see what's yeah. possible. Uh, well, I always enjoy catching up with you because, um, I mean, you know, we started talking, I think, when Let Me In came out, and I, I think you know that was my favorite film of that year. And, oh, thank and, you. and since then, and for those that, by the way, haven't seen that one because it didn't get the the platform, the whatever whatever the kismet of the universe, that it didn't hit in the right way, and it's just such a beautiful piece of work. Oh, and, thank you. And, and since then, with Dawn and now War, uh, it's a tough act to follow your own your own act on oh, Dawn, thank but you. but uh, but you certainly lived up to it, and in fact, may have succeeded uh, it, it with War for the Planet of the Apes, and uh, I hope we keep chatting on each and every film uh, in the future, man. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. This episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Sherry Barkley, Michael Catano, Kasia Mihailovich, and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts.